This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Welcome to Inside COVID-19. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. In this episode 81, we talk to Professor Christoph Fraser, the man who advised the South African and British governments on the COVID-19 contact tracing app. And we speak to Stellenbosch University's Professor Wolfgang Preiser, a virology expert of global standing on diseases that jump from animals to humans. He shares the latest thinking on COVID-19, which is a zoonotic disease. First, the latest news on COVID-19. South Africa's restrictions to curb the spread of the coronavirus have put the economy into its longest recession in 28 years, with gross domestic product contracting more than expected in the second quarter. GDP shrank an annualized 51% in the period through June from the previous quarter, following a revised 1.8% contraction in the first three months. That's according to Statistics South Africa, which says that this is the steepest decline since at least 1990. The Reserve Bank forecasts a rebound with annualized growth of 17.5% in the third quarter, but continued power cuts in what's already a record year of outages and slow reforms could threaten the recovery. Economists at Momentum Investments warn that the level of economic activity is only likely to return to pre-COVID-19 levels by 2023 or even 2024. The Financial Times reports that South Africa's economy recorded its worst slump in decades, And it quotes the Democratic Alliance saying that the pre-COVID recession in South Africa has been turned into the worst GDP contraction in history. Razia Khan, chief Africa and Middle East economist for Standard Bank, is quoted as saying that the GDP data is shocking and says although it is likely the weakest point of the year for the South African economy, growth forecasts may be subject to further downward revision. Almost 650,000 cases and more than 15,000 deaths have now been recorded in South Africa, making it the worst hit country in Africa. The World Health Organization reports that the human cost of coronavirus has continued to mount globally, with more than 27.3 million cases confirmed and more than 884,600 people known to have died from the disease around the world. Bloomberg reports that Donald Trump says that a vaccine for COVID-19 may be ready in October. And Germany's new virus cases increased at the fastest pace since April, as its public health authority said the situation continued to be dynamic and serious. The Bank of England's chief economist has warned against extending a government program to retain employees during the pandemic and has said that some jobs may well not be coming back. Next, Professor Christoph Fraser of Oxford University speaks to business founder Alec Hogg about the COVID-19 tracing app. Professor Christoph Fraser is with Oxford University with a big data institute there. Also, he's a scientific advisor, Christoph, interesting to see, not just to the UK government, but also to our own here in South Africa. We've just recently launched in South Africa the COVID alert Uh, app. 
which uh, I've downloaded, but I don't think too many of my countrymen have just yet. How many people need to download this contact tracing app before it becomes effective? Well, so the the effectiveness kicks in when a very low number of people have downloaded the app. What you need is some of your contacts to to have um, downloaded the app. So we found through through various simulations that within any sort of population that's mixing, as soon as you have 10 to 15 percent of the population uh, using the app, you start to have an impact in terms of reducing the rate of new infections and of serious disease. So that, that's not that high, 10 to 15 percent. Is it achievable in uh, a circumstance like South Africa finds itself in where infections have now really reduced significantly? I, I guess the question really is how do you get the public interested? Well, so, so different people will be interested in, in different ways of accessing information. The reach of new technologies through people's phones and through apps has transformed many sectors in terms of being able to get information, being able to have access to what you need in order to protect yourself, protect your family and your loved ones going forwards. How well has it worked elsewhere in the world? Perhaps you could give us some instances of where a contact tracing app like the one that's been introduced in South Africa has actually helped reduce infections or deaths from COVID-19. Well, so we're still quite at an early stage in terms of the development of, of this new technology. So it started off in Singapore. This type of app started in Singapore. Now, before that, there were apps used in China and used in South Korea that, that had a, a different model of using a lot of data. But uh, these new apps for contact tracing, they're partly to protect the privacy of individuals while still doing the mechanism of finding people at risk. Uh, and we're now seeing several countries like Ireland, Germany, Switzerland, uh, where you, you have, you know, more than 30% of the population using the app. And some of the, the early data that came from, from Switzerland last week showed that uh, approximately as many people as you would expect have been sort of getting, noti- well, sending notifications, exposure notifications through the app. So I think the journey has been sort of one we've seen uh, many times with new technology, which is that when the, the idea is first mooted at, at an early stage in the epidemic, you know, there was quite a lot of excitement about the potential for this technology and then maybe even some hype and then maybe a, a bit of disillusionment. And I think now we're, we're entering the territory where we're seeing the apps integrate much more into the system of public health and seeing the added value as an intervention and I think we're on a journey where fundamentally the ability to, to rapidly organize information and to pass information between people is exactly the kind of thing that we do need to really get a, ahead of epidemics in a way that's never really been done before. We're now in that phase where we're starting to see how the technology is really working in practice. But it, in some sense, it's still fairly early days for this new technology. Does it work in collaboration with manual testing as well? Yeah, so absolutely. What we see with, with apps and digital technology is that they sort of, they enhance, they provide logistics uh, to systems which are already there. So you need people to get tested, you know, it's, it's a gateway to prevention, and that system needs to be quite efficient. I mean, one of the things we've, we learned very early on about COVID is that 
it's not an easy infection to control in a reactive way. So, so we saw a lot of lockdowns. The lockdowns worked, but were quite harmful for society. So the contact tracing is a way of being much smarter, just reducing the disruption to the people who are just likely to, to transmit the virus and trying to disrupt as few other people as possible. That whole process happens very quickly. And we've seen many people are asymptomatic. Uh, and amongst people who develop symptoms, transmission, you know, starts a couple of days before people get symptoms. So, so contact tracing is, is not easy. It needs to happen quickly. I think the most important thing for the whole system is to explain very clearly what it's for. So really good communication. You know, the reason why we're doing things like testing, the reasons we're testing large, large swathes of the population and doing contact tracing and asking people to isolate, which is disruptive and difficult for sure, is that's what's going to, to help us avoid lockdowns. So the idea here is if you were doing it manually, if there was no app, you would have to some way down the line know that someone's been infected and then manually trace back which people were in contact with them so you can block the expansion or the multiplication of the virus. In this way, it accelerates that whole process very rapidly. Exactly. So the idea is that your phone has a memory of the other phones that you've come into close proximity with and stores in an anonymous way a key, which is a history of, of your contact. And if one of you becomes a case, then the others get notified instantly. So instead of me coming to you and, and asking you, who did you meet three days ago and did you stay within two meters for 15 minutes of them, you know, your phone has kept a record of that. And both of you have consented to that process and none of you are sort of sharing the information, the whole contact network. You're just passing a notification which is, you know, if you've seen this anonymous key, you've been exposed. So the person won't know that they were exposed to you rather than the person they saw in the morning or the person they saw the next day. They'll just get a notification that they've been exposed. It's an easy process to do if you're investigating an outbreak of six people in a given location. But once you've got an epidemic spreading, the, the kind of contact tracing workforces we've seen in manual contact tracing involve thousands of people. Also, the capacity, you know, as you, as you pointed out, there are times when the epidemic's quite low and there are times when it's quite high. And we need to be prepared, always prepared for the fact that, you know, it comes in multiple waves. So having that kind of scalable surge capacity is something where uh, an app really can add a lot of value. So you can imagine a workforce, you know, that's very focused on investigating individual outbreaks, doing a really good job, and then suddenly, you know, there are chains of transmission. It's not really competing with manual contact tracing. It's saying, well, some of these contacts you're going to find very quickly. And that, you know, it all helps. In public health, typically uh, you get great complementarity between uh, different interventions. Is the onus on the individual? In other words, if I get a notification on my COVID Alert SA app that yeah. I've come in contact with somebody for more than 15 minutes, uh, who has tested positive, is it up to me now to isolate? Public health is built on sort of social contracts and a sense of solidarity. So it's a, it's a partnership between the individual who has to do something very difficult, but essentially it's for our collective good. But also then it's a, it's a contract with society that has to support the people who are 
particularly the most vulnerable who can't afford, you know, who are on casual employment contracts. And we've seen we've seen the infection has been very much persisted amongst groups who really haven't had a choice to isolate or not as part of their work. And therefore, you know, this app is not going to solve those social problems. And that's why it's part of the system, but it's not the answer to the system, because the exposure notification system, it enables certain actions to take place. But yes, there's the onus on the individual and there's the onus on society to support people who just otherwise wouldn't have a choice. You've been intimately involved in a study in Washington State, in the United States, with Google, who, who are together with Apple have devised this privacy system. What were the results that came out of that that you might pass on to the South African government as uh, one of their advisors? The study we did with Google was built on some earlier work we'd done uh, using simulations. So we use detailed computer simulations of how the epidemic spreads within a population of a million individuals. And then what we did with Google, they, they had a, a great team of software engineers who helped us you know, make our simulation much more efficient so that we could model the manual contact tracing so that we could model the whole system of public health and study this complementarity of the app. And what we found, which goes against what's been reported in a lot of the media, is we found that the app, when faced with the prospect of a second increasing wave, that the app really could add, you know, even if the uptake was really quite modest. So so we modeled these different workplaces with different levels of riskiness, people traveling or not traveling to, to workplaces. And we found that no matter what the setup uh, that we used, uh, the app always added something to the public health measure, but alone wasn't sufficient. So I think the way that the results were framed initially is you needed this vast population of people using the app and then you could stop the epidemic. Whereas here what we look at is the incremental addition of the app. If the app was used by 15% of the population over the course of a second wave, going back to your question, assuming that people are able to, to respond to the notifications from the app, that could reduce the total number of infections by about 8%, which is a lot of life saves. And then when you combine that with manual contact tracing, you roughly uh, double that effect. Certainly takes a lot of pressure off the public health system uh, when it gets strained at that point. But what about the privacy issues? Uh, you work in big data. You understand this better than most people on earth. How private is the app as far as users are concerned? There was a lot of uh, heated debate about the privacy of the apps in the beginning. This particular configuration of the app is, is extremely private in the sense that nobody is collecting the data on who you're contacting. They're not, you know, you're not being tracked. It's essentially just saying, if you get sick, you send off an anonymous ID, which gets looked at by the other phones and no information beyond that is stored. So it's, I think the, in terms of um, precedent for public health apps, this really privacy at the center of the design. Now, that poses some complexity because it makes it a little bit more challenging to then measure, you know, whether the apps are, are having the effect that we needed to, to prevent the infections. So one of the effects of this is that we need to set up scientific research studies where people are enrolled and are willing to share a bit more data in order to really test this new technology. But I think, I think the principles is mimicking what manual contact tracing does 
and it's doing so in a way that I think people can be reassured is, is extremely privacy preserving. And I presume it will be able to be used in future should and when uh, other pandemics hit us. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the ability to help respond early on in an outbreak, I mean, one of the lessons of how to control infections and, and epidemics is to sort of hit early, hit hard. So if you look at the countries that have now reached a, a state where it's, it's not quite life as normal, but have really relaxed a lot of their controls while at the same time having uh, low mortality, had good testing capacity so that they could see it coming and had a lockdown really early on and quite strict lockdowns, but then relaxed them quite quickly afterwards. So places like, you know, South Korea and New Zealand and Norway. And that ability to be able to respond quickly early on before you face a wave of exponential spread really buys you a lot of long-term benefits. One of the take-homes is we really need to, to be able to prepare and actually to have a system of testing, contact tracing, and of communication just to be able to intervene really early on during that window of opportunity. You know, we were not able to scale up within that period of you know, six to eight weeks when we sort of knew this was coming, you know, just didn't have that infrastructure in place. And having things that you can deploy at that point could be tremendously useful. Next, we hear from Professor Wolfgang Preiser, whose principal research interests include emerging and potentially zoonotic viral diseases. Professor Preiser has served as an advisor to the World Health Organization on severe acute respiratory syndrome in China in 2003, and he has also led the Frankfurt Group, who, together with colleagues from Hamburg, were among the first to isolate the SARS-associated coronavirus in spring 2003. Professor Preiser is head of the Division of Medical Virology at the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences at the University of Stellenbosch. Professor, let's just start with a look at COVID. What type of disease is it? It is what we feared would be coming along at some stage. We obviously could not predict when exactly, but it is a viral infection that is transmitted quite easily through the air causes more or less severe disease and we are learning still on you know just how bad it is and we have learned that many cases are relatively mild but we've also seen that particularly in predisposed patients it can be you know devastating illness and that's exactly what what we've been predicting to some extent to happen for quite some time it is not unlike the much feared and and and, and much uh, sort of uh, prepared for influenza pandemic, but it is a different virus, obviously. Did you say similar to the flu virus? So, virologically speaking, coronaviruses and influenza viruses are different. They share certain characteristics, but what they have in common is that there is a huge reservoir out there in, in the animal kingdom, and these are, are both groups of viruses that quite easily change their characteristics and may occasionally become infectious to human beings. That happens, and if there is uh, sufficiently close contact between the source animals and humans, the virus can, as it is said, called, uh, jump the species barrier and then cause human infection. And that probably ha happens quite frequently without uh, many people taking notice because many of these infections are mild and many of these viruses will not be easily passed on from human to human. 
But if we are unlucky, as we have been this time, the new virus then has the ability to be spread very efficiently from human to human and cause severe disease, at, at least in the proportion of those infected, then it, what happens is, is exactly what we've been dreading, and that is a new pandemic. And we have for quite some time actually known that uh, these pandemics do happen, and that even though we cannot predict exactly what type of virus is going to cause it and when, we have known that it is something we need to prepare for. And there have been quite some efforts in doing that, starting in the animal reservoirs, looking at what viruses occur there and what are their characteristics and how much would they have to change in order to pose a threat to human beings, but also preparing the health system for such an eventuality. And, you know, sort of <laughs> looking back, looking back is, is maybe a bit premature in that the pandemic is still ongoing as of now, but but uh, looking at the, the past uh, nine months in, in, in global history, I think we haven't done very good in either. This is a virus which was actually more or less found a few years ago in, in animals, and we did very little to prevent it from moving into the human population. And once it had done that, many countries, including very advanced uh, industrialized countries, found themselves quite unprepared to face the threat. And I think it's not a, a wonderful moment in, in human history as, as regards our ability to put what we know into practice. Professor, that's very interesting because the perception is this disease was only discovered at best at the end of last year. But you're actually saying we've known about this for a while and collectively the scientists haven't done anything to find a solution to it. I was involved in 2003 with the first SARS outbreak in East Asia. At the time I was working in Frankfurt and we happened to receive through a transcontinental flight the first SARS patients and in, in that way also happened to be among the first groups to isolate the causative virus. At that stage, that this was a coronavirus was really a surprise. Coronaviruses have been known for several decades, but not receiving much attention by human virologists and doctors. The reason being that the human coronaviruses uh, prior to these epidemic ones cause typically mild disease, common code-like illness, and are also not very easy to work with in the laboratories, and which has very little clinical consequences because we know the patient is going to recover within a week. You know, it doesn't really make them great targets for scientific efforts. So in 2003, we learned that we were wrong and that we should have taken cues from our veterinary colleagues who had known coronaviruses. We are, I'm talking of different members of the coronavirus family here. Uh, so in, in veterinary sciences, coronaviruses have been known for many years to be the etiologies of very severe diseases. So our veterinary colleagues had really investigated this very properly, had developed vaccines, diagnostic tests, and so on. And human virology only caught up uh, starting in 2003 when SARS came along. And we caught up quite quickly. We learned a lot. We have since understood that the likely original source of these viruses are bats, with a huge multitude of different coronaviruses living in bats naturally. And as befits the natural host, 
not knowingly, I mean known to us, causing any ill effects and in the natural reservoir. And then occasionally these bat viruses may spill over into other mammals, including human beings. And that is what happened in 2003 with SARS, the original SARS-1 virus. It then happened again since 2012 with MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which can infect humans starting from camels. But then subsequently, particularly if there's poor infection control in healthcare settings, human beings can then infect one another. But luckily, neither the first SARS nor the MERS coronavirus are very infectious, so they do not transmit that easily. The diseases they cause are quite devastating. The mortality with the first SARS virus was about 10%, and with MERS it is 30%. But luckily, both viruses were unable to establish themselves in the human population. And that was the situation until the beginning of this year. And then, obviously, we've learned a lot since then that close relative of the first SARS coronavirus has now emerged again, being clinically less devastating, but being far more infectious. And one of those features, obviously, is that patients are infectious prior to developing symptoms. So it's not easy, you know, the two days before you fall ill and can be diagnosed and should be isolating yourself, you're already infectious. So the somehow less dangerous virus actually turns out to be more dangerous in the sense that we were unable to stop its spread through the human population. And that is what ended up in the ongoing pandemic of coronavirus. Just looking at the bigger issue of diseases jumping from animals to humans, how much of a problem is it in our daily lives? What other diseases are we contracting that are zoonotic and we don't realize it? There is a multitude of infections that can be transmitted from animals to humans. And in fact, a lot of the problems started when our ancestors started domesticating animals. Obviously, that improved their social and, and economic situation. They, they had a more stable food supply. They could settle. But the cost of the close interaction between these different species was that pathogens were traded either way. And this is where we think diseases like TB, measles and others came from originally. So it's not anything new. It's happened ever since. And whenever humanity takes another step, there is a risk that we open a new Pandora's box and, and expose ourselves to new pathogens. So while, while not new and, you know, things like rabies, a number of bacterial infections and parasitic infections all count amongst the zoonoses. But what we are particularly concerned about are those viruses or other agents out there in the natural world with which we normally would not have much contact. So there's a forest species and the forest remains undisturbed. That agent, that virus would be circulating in its natural host and, and not, not really too much. Of course, now we, we, we don't leave them in peace. So, and, and of course, we are far more than we've ever been before. Our species has grown to shocking numbers. And that means also density and the contact rate between people has also intensified massively. Taking all this together, the chances of such a spillover event happening has just increased massively. We were shocked when in West Africa the Ebola outbreak not only spread to three countries, but actually continued for more than two years. People said, well, they hadn't known it in these parts of the world, but in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, they have known about Ebola since the 1970s and they have become very good at controlling it. 
But look at the outbreak in the eastern parts of the Congo that also continued for up to two years. And had we not had a vaccine, it would probably still be uh, ongoing. So it's, it's, a, it's a very explosive mixture of us interfering more and more with the natural world, often causing changes in an unintended fashion. I don't think anybody does that on purpose, but by our you know, intrusion into natural habitats and, and our interference, often in a destructive way with these habitats, we are unleashing a whole Pandora's box of, of agents that are otherwise sitting there very happily and then our own population density, economic activities and so on come to the fore and, and do the rest. I'm still quite convinced that many events never make it onto the global stage, luckily. So there are probably a lot of mild infections happening. But the more you allow this to happen, the higher the chance that one or the other actually becomes a global event. And that is what's happened with the coronavirus. And that is also what we have feared for a long time uh, can happen any time with a new strain of the influenza virus. Are we fairly sure that bats were the primary source of the COVID-19 virus? Ultimately, I think yes. But whether the virus was able to move from a bat to a human being or whether it went through an intermediary host is unclear. We haven't worked that out yet. Investigations are ongoing. It's not clear whether there will be a solution to that riddle. But we do know, and that is also what we found ourselves studying bats in, in southern Africa for the past eight years or so, and what many other people have found in different parts of the world, bats harbor a huge variety of different coronaviruses, just like aquatic birds harbor a huge variety of different influenza viruses, the vast majority of which do not pose a threat to any other species, including our own but some of which may, if given the opportunity, possibly evolve into a form that may infect us and then cause severe disease, uh, be transmitted quite readily from human to human, and thus cause the uh, next pandemic. So what I uh, really want to stress is it's not a question of blaming bats and doing atrocious and in most places illegal things by destroying bat roots and so on. The contrary is right. We know that by interfering with animals, you upset population structures and you normally make things worse. We saw that in Central Europe where for many years, in the last century, people were actually hunting foxes very aggressively to combat uh, rabies. And, and what happened is that if you kill you know, foxes or many foxes in a certain area, foxes from outside that area will now move in because there is now mice in abundance, which may also carry certain infectious agents, so it may not be a good trade in any case, but you also unsettle the population structure, you cause migration. So my plea is be kind to animals, leave them in peace, do not interact in a nonsensible way, I mean with, with naked hands or basically interact at all unless you need to rather get an animal handler if you find an injured animal, a wild animal, but don't be afraid. If left undisturbed, these animals don't pose a threat to us and they, they have many positive effects that they have. But nevertheless, it is interesting to study the variety of potential pathogens that uh, different types of animals carry so that we can be better prepared. So that the next time something happens, we are quicker in developing diagnostic tests 
and we may also devise preemptive measures. We may be able to say, well, you know, this is the time of the year when the bats have their young, and this is when there's a lot of infections being passed among the bat roosts, just stay away from it. Simple measures that might help. And I must say I'm quite saddened to see that despite us and many colleagues around the world accumulating such a wealth of knowledge about coronaviruses in bats and other types of wildlife, and the risk factors being quite well known, that nothing was done really about it to prevent the consumption and trade of these bats, which is the obvious way of preventing this type of spillover. What do you think about app tracing now? Do you think that will help curb the spread further? I think it can contribute. I have installed both the German app, which obviously is not going to notify me because I don't think many people in South Africa use it. And I have now also installed the new South African contact tracing app. Within the limitations that these things may have, I think if a sufficient number of people use it, it will help. And in fact, I'm currently attending a workshop and one of the intended participants can't make it. So we are zooming him in because he has been diagnosed with COVID, he's coughing, he's otherwise not doing too badly, but he does not know where he would have become infected. So the the hope is that by more widespread use of these apps, he would have received a warning from somebody that he encountered, who at the time was very likely still feeling perfectly well, who then came down with a cough and a fever a day later, went to have a test, got the test result a day or two later, and then found that he had COVID and had exposed uh, others. So I think this is where apps can really help. Um, so I, I'm, I'm all for it. This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. And that brings to an end your Inside COVID-19 podcast. Until next time.
This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery.